Dear Father, Lord, we thank you for the opportunity we have this morning to study your word. Lord, we invite the author, the Holy Spirit, the one who inspired the apostles, the prophets of old who wrote these words, to be in our midst and give us understanding. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As written there in our Sabbath afternoon lesson, our memory verse for the week is this. It comes from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That particular passage does a good job of kind of an overview synopsis of where we're headed in this week's study. That God has called us not just to receive salvation, but to also be transmitters of that great light to others. A chosen generation for the purpose of calling forth praise from all people. And sometimes we think about our witness Kind of like we talked about here, global mission and outreach and even personal ministry outside in the world to those we meet. But the lesson this week asks a more personal question. It starts with that, what have they seen in your house? That the elements of sharing our faith and witnessing for the Lord aren't just some pieces and parts on public display or at certain occasions, but really cut to the heart of our own personal, intimate, private lives. Home reveals the heart. That's what's really going on here. So as we discuss this, what strikes you even just in this memory verse that comes to mind? What are some thoughts that start coming from your head? Well, the thing that first pops into my mind is that the people that care about us the most often get the worst version of ourselves. Um, When we're at home, we oftentimes let that surface guard down and around our, our spouse or our children, we can, if we're not careful, um, allow the flesh to come out. And who we really are is who we are at home, not who we are at church or at work where it's quite easy to do it temporarily. Um, but if, if, we're, if we're going to be uh, genuine, it's going to come out in, in the home. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, and ultimately that's going to happen in the home. Okay, so you you mentioned a version of yourself. Is it possible that people have two selves? I think (laughs) Uncle Arthur addressed that years ago. I don't know how many of you remember the story. I think it was called Two Susies. Oh, Caroline, that's right. They they know their Uncle Arthur stories. (laughs) The ones with grandkids and kids currently remember the name. (laughs) Two Carolines. What was the spirit of that illustration? What was he trying to say? Uh, uh, Yes, where there was the sweet Caroline at school. Her her teacher thought she was such a sweetheart, and uh, she was very naughty and mean Mm. at home. And so her mother decided to one day invite the teacher over to home without letting Caroline know. And uh, the teacher was uh, hiding away in another room when Caroline came home. And Caroline came and was really speaking very nasty to her mother and was not being nice at all. And then she came around and she saw her teacher and, oh, teacher! But, of course, the teacher could see that there were indeed two Carolines. Mm, Mercy. But in that way, we do have two selves because the flesh and the spirit Mm -hmm. are always wrestling. 
And so um, the point is that we tend to, um, when we're in the most comfortable settings, oftentimes be most willing to yield to the flesh, when in reality, we need to guard, especially when we're around those who uh, we are most responsible for and our influence means the most with, we should be especially careful at home. All right, so a lot of things to unpack in this lesson this week, and so we're excited about that. Jaron, why don't you take us to Second Chronicles and talk to us a little bit about this illustration from King Hezekiah's life. Yes, in Second Chronicles uh, chapter 32, um, the lesson used the example of Hezekiah. Now, Hezekiah was a good king. In fact, uh, Prophets and Kings indicates that Hezekiah was one of the best kings since King David. He was known for his reformers. He was a reformer. The time was a time of national apostasy, and he restored the Passover. They had a great Passover. And um, he was a good king. Now, toward the end of Hezekiah's life, he got deathly sick. And there was a message revealed to him by a prophet of the Lord that he was going to die. Now, that's quite a message to come to anyone, that he was going to die. Uh, the message was, set your house in order. Hezekiah wasn't ready to die yet, and he pleaded with the Lord to give him more time, more life. And God answered that prayer in a miraculous way and promised that he would add 15 years to his life. Now, there was a sign that Hezekiah asked for. This is a very interesting sign, and the sign was that the sundial would go back on the sundial. Now, the incredible thing was is that people from other nations saw this. This wasn't just on Hezekiah's sundial. This was all around. And over in Babylon, they saw this, and they heard about uh, the miracle that happened, and so ambassadors from Babylon came. And this is where, you know, Hezekiah's um, downfall, where we see it here. And I'm reading from Second Chronicles chapter uh, 32, verse 24. In those days, Hezekiah was sick and near death, and he prayed to the Lord, and he spoke to him and gave him a sign. And that sign with the sundial that we just read about. Um, going down to verse 27. Hezekiah had very great riches and honor and made himself treasuries for silver, for gold, for precious stones, for spices, for shields, and all kinds of desirable items, storehouses for the harvest of grain, wine, and oil, and stalls for all kinds of livestock and folds and flocks. And, and you can read on there. But then you get to verse 31, and what word begins verse 31? However, but, and it's like, oh man, why does it always have to come? But it does. However, regarding the ambassadors of the princes of Babylon, whom they sent to him to inquire about the wonder that was done in the land. What wonder was that? That was that sign. So they came to inquire about the sign, about the miracle of his healing. But what did he do? Well, what he did was, um, it says here in verse 31, God withdrew from him in order to test him that he might know all that was in his heart. It's a sad thing that instead of exalting God and, and giving God the glory, he just showed him all the wonderful stores in his house. Now, there's a lot in that story, obviously, but let's focus on that end part. Obviously, the Lord had blessed him greatly, as was evident by all those storehouses, but when the opportunity came, 
to reveal in his own life and by his personal testimony the grandeur of God and the glory of his character, instead of ascribing that glory to the source where it truly belonged, rightfully, he just kind of showed him around the house and it certainly implied that this is, I'm doing pretty good. Did you see this? Did you see that? And never once did that opportunity manifest in a great testimony. And the Lord said he withdrew to test him. That's a fascinating comment. Yeah, I think the idea of testing him is pretty universal. Um, in other words, the idea of what we speak about in our most comfortable settings will reveal to ourselves where we currently are spiritually oftentimes. Um, in Steps to Christ on page 58, she actually speaks of this very test. She says, It is true that there may be an outward correctness of deportment without the renewing power of Christ. The love of influence and the desire for the esteem of others may produce a well-ordered life. Self-respect may lead us to avoid the appearance of evil. A selfish heart may perform generous actions. By what means, then, are we to determine whose side we are on? So again, what's the test? Who has the heart? With whom are our thoughts? Of whom do we love to converse? Who has our warmest affections and our best energies? If we are Christ's, our thoughts are with him, and our sweetest thoughts are of him. All we have in ours is consecrated to him. We long to bear his image, breathe his spirit, do his will, and please him in all things. So how many times have we in our own lives been able to see if we're beginning to uh, stray or, be, or lose some of our spiritual grip, we find ourselves a little more interested in secular, uh, earthly stuff and it becomes more of an obsession to us, and it's a good signal for any of us that, hey, if I am not wanting to be in those spiritual settings, wanting to talk about the Lord, then it's evidence that my heart needs renewed. Yeah, I was reading in um, Prophets and Kings this morning, and it says here on page 347, the story of Hezekiah's failure is fraught with an important lesson for all. And it's basically the same lesson that, that you just brought out. And the question I was asking myself is, you know, how do I, there's these opportunities that God gives us to really share mm -hmm. about his glory, and how is it that we don't miss those? And there was a statement here I thought, I thought was interesting, it, and it's basically saying the same thing that you just said, but it says, when mind and heart are filled with the love of God, it will not be difficult to impart that which enters into the spiritual life. So I think the solution here, and perhaps if Hezekiah had been daily filling his mind and heart with the love of God, that would have been the natural outflowing uh, when the ambassadors arrived, rather than, you know, um, showing him all his cool stuff. Right. At first I wondered, how could it be after God had done this wonderful miracle for Hezekiah of saving his life, sparing him for 15 more years, and turning the sun back. I mean, that's a pretty big deal. How could he not help but share with these visitors, look at this amazing God? But then as I thought about it further, maybe could it be that Hezekiah was embarrassed after all, these are secular people, mm. and maybe they, they wouldn't be interested in, in God and knowing about God. So he wanted to relate to them on their level, which would be these secular things. And I wonder if today maybe we are afraid to share about God with secular people when God, in fact, has done wonderful things for us. And 
that the secular people would be blessed if we only had the courage to share. Just think what would have happened if Hezekiah would have had the courage to share with those secular people from Babylon. Yeah, and, and, you know, this idea, going back to this whole uh, memory verse, right? You're a chosen druid for the purpose of proclaiming the wonderful praises of God who brought you out of darkness in the You have an experience to share. You've been brought out, and you have something to reveal in your life, and God gives opportunity Yes, to test where we are and to be a witness to others. And that's exactly what our camp meeting theme is, as a witness, right? And it makes me think of this passage from the New Testament, the book of Ephesians. The Apostle Paul, he, he has some interesting ways that he approaches topics, and he, he writes from an interesting perspective. And one thread you see in his writings, Paul writes like a man who is being watched. He, he writes things like, I believe that God has made us a spectacle, both to men and to angels, right? And he picks up that theme in Ephesians chapter 3, and I'm thinking again about Hezekiah had this opportunity, all these other people coming in to see what was going on. And look what we write in chapter 3 of Ephesians verse 10. Again, Paul is talking about how God wants us to see, God wants us to be an agent of his glory to the intent in verse 10 that now the manifold wisdom of God, now this is kind of a heavy phrase, so let's break it down, this wisdom of God is manifold, that's multifaceted, it's complex, it's deep, it's a big idea of God, right? God's plan, his power here, his, what it calls the manifold wisdom of God, might be made known, and look at the next three words, by the church, but to whom? to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. You get the picture, God lives in heavenly places, the principalities and powers live in heavenly places. If God wanted to explain something about his wisdom, his mind, his plan, the simplest, most straightforward thing they could do is just turn and just say it to them, explain it to them. But it, be, it betrays the idea that even God can say everything straight out truth, but people need to see it demonstrated to understand it and appreciate it, right? For instance, in the beginning of the great controversy, God was right to cast Satan out of heaven, but he didn't destroy him right then and there, even though he would have been perfectly within his rights to do so because the other beings wouldn't have understood it. They wouldn't have seen why Satan needs to die. But the cross of Calvary made it very clear why Satan should die. He was indeed a liar and a murderer. He was revealed. God allowed it to happen. And now the angels, those principalities and powers in the heavenly places, are not looking for a reason why Satan should die. That's abundantly evident. But they do have a question why any of us should be allowed to live. And God could turn to the angels and say, oh, don't worry, it's going to be fine. They're going to be great. And they're going to say, yes, I know in theory and we trust you, but we need to see that it actually works that God can change lives. And so he puts us on display as an evidence of his power and glory, not to demonstrate that we're so great, but that he is so great through our lives and experience. Hezekiah had that opportunity to be a witness before angels and men. And instead of giving the glory to God, he takes it to himself. There's a lesson for all of us in there. I just love this passage in Ephesians. If we continue on down in that same chapter, you know, God doesn't give a, he, he doesn't just set us on our own and say, you need to do this on your own. Mm. Uh, if we look down in Ephesians chapter 3, 
verse 16, we read that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory. Now, Hezekiah thought he had riches. But Hezekiah's riches, that was nothing compared to God's riches. The riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Amen. And that gives us wonderful power. We can claim the riches of Christ's glory to live in us. Mm. Powerful thought. I just wanted to tack on on Ephesians 3, this idea of God being the manifold wisdom of God being made known by the church, which, by the way, you tried to unpack. The wisdom of God simply means, you know, his full uh, character, his justice, his fairness, the, the things that the universe is looking at to determine whether or not they're accurate and true are made known by the church. And that um, makes me think of a passage in Matthew where Jesus was talking about John the Baptist. Matthew eleven eighteen says, For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they, came, they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So people are just, you know, if, if they see one thing, they're saying one, the other, they try to cast other uh, blame on him. But then he final, uh, finalizes the argument by saying, but wisdom is justified by her children. Mm. So again, the manifold wisdom of God is made known by the church. Wisdom is justified by her children. The idea is that you can't really justify yourself very accurately because people will question the, you know, the, the sincerity or you can always be questioned. I mean, when Lucifer cast his claims against God in heaven, really, it wasn't possible for God to just say, no, that's not true. Because, of course, the claim was that he's not telling you the truth. So you have to have it be validated some other way. It would be as if somebody accused me of abusing one of my daughters. And I said, no, I don't do that. Well, that would have only so much weight. But what they would be watching is how my daughter interacts with me and what she says about me and how comfortable she is around me. And when, when the universe sees the people of God, even through persecution, through tribulation, like Job, going through this experience of suffering and everything, but still, yet I will trust him, it is the most validating thing in terms of the manifold wisdom of God, more than anything that he personally could say. And so we bear witness to the goodness of God by the trust that we have in Him and, and, and how we live in our daily lives. It actually paints a picture of God either for good or not. Hmm. Well, let's move to Deuteronomy chapter 6 and talk about where is that image of God formulated. I mean, it's, it's formed not, again, as we talked about in the public sphere alone or not just on the Sabbath day or not just in these special circumstances, but in the very most intimate, most personal parts of our lives is where this character of God is not only formed but revealed and formed in others through our witness. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, uh, very famous passage here. 
uh, verses 6 and 7, it says, And these words which I command you today shall be in your what? Heart. Heart. So God didn't say just have them on your mind or just write it. He wants the words to be in our hearts, right? Then it says in verse 7, You shall teach them diligently to your children. Now pause right here. Jim, I couldn't help but think about your appeal today. What is one of the best ways to have the word of God in your heart? Is to help put the word of God in someone else's heart, right? He said if you want them in your heart, you start teaching them to others. And that starts where? In the home. Diligently, he says, teach them to your children, and you shall talk of them when you walk, uh, walk uh, I'm sorry, talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as signs on your hand, and they shall be as, a fr- as frontlets on your, between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. He's really going to great lengths here to talk about the importance of the Word of God starting in the home, in the everyday routine of life. That's where this great witness for the Lord first begins. It's right in the home. And it gives the illustration of the New Testament, how Simon Peter wasn't called directly by Jesus, but first he was found by his brother. And that was fascinating, right? Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord for Andrew. Amen. We need some Andrews in the... Yeah, and... and, 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 All throughout the Bible record, uh, the gospel record, Andrew really doesn't make that many appearances. Mm -hmm. But every single time Andrew is mentioned, he's always bringing somebody to Jesus. Now, he's not a Simon Peter. I'm guessing their household was interesting growing up. (laughs) Peter's always stepping out in in faith or in presumption and doing all that. But Andrew, just quietly behind the scenes, bringing someone to Jesus right in his own home. You know, our lesson is about what is in your house. What do they see in your house? Mm-hmm. And um, going back to that, uh, the memory text where it talks about proclaiming um, God's word, mm-hmm. that, also, that proclaiming is not simply your public life, but that's your private life as well. And what I mean by private life is your family, your home life. And I think one of the, the greatest things we as, as Christian families need to do is create opportunities, uh, occasions for... Um, spiritual conversations to come up with in our homes. And I personally have found, I have, have three young children, one of the best ways is to have morning and evening family worship. Um, you know, in verse 6 here it says, you shall teach them diligently to your children and talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way. What Maybe when you walk by the way. We don't do as much walking as we used to, but we do a lot of driving. So maybe when you're driving in your car, you, perhaps there could be um, Bible stories you could listen to with the children or even the Bible. Um, and it says, when you lie down and when you rise up, you almost have that morning and evening worship uh, implied there. Right. And I know for a fact that if, if we weren't having morning and evening worship in our home, there wouldn't be those opportunities for our children to ask questions. Mm-hmm. Like, where did Satan come from? And, and these deep questions, these opportunities. Mm-hmm. I think it's important that we create these occasions, these opportunities, these places for our children to ask these questions. Right, and the Bible gives us that template right sure. there in Deuteronomy, yeah. Yeah, I'm thinking about just the, the beauty of being able to influence people by bringing them into um, a very vulnerable place in your life. So when you invite people into your home, you are inviting them to get to know you better and to take a look. I mean, it's, it's a very personal thing. And that in and of itself uh, creates trust. 
trust begets trust. And when you do that, it automatically begins to build a relationship. Um, and when they see that you're not, you know, uh, sterile and what have you, but it's, you're very comfortable in your home, um, there's just a lot about just making people feel comfortable in your home that is a wonderful influence. But on the idea of family worship, there's a quote that, that I wanted to share, um, just Jaron made me think of here in um, Child Guidance, the book Child Guidance. It says, in our efforts for the comfort and happiness of guests, let us not overlook our obligations to God. The hour of prayer should not be neglected for any consideration. Mm. Then, toward the end of that quote, it says, let all who visit Christians see that the hour of prayer is the most precious, the most sacred, and the happiest hour of the day. And the idea I get is, let all who visit Christians. In other words, it's speaking of the person visiting as perhaps not a Christian. So let them see from visiting a Christian, that means that even if they're not a Christian, we should invite them into that time of prayer that we have in our home so they can see how important it is to us and how much of a blessing it is in our home. And again, this comes back to not being embarrassed. Oh, they wouldn't want to join us or whatever. I think we're so, we might be surprised when we invite people to join us for family worship, how much they would appreciate that, of singing, reading the Bible together, and so on. Well, and I think about that too. Um, maybe one of the reasons we're embarrassed, if we were to be embarrassed, is like, oh, we're having such a good time visiting with our guests, but wait, now let's turn off the fun. We need to draw the shades. It's time for worship. And it gets very heavy and quiet. And, but listen to that statement again. Let them see that it is the happiest time of the day, that our day would be worse if we didn't have this, right? That I, I know that in our lives, uh, we, we have busy schedules and whatnot, and, but we try to make that time each day with our kids to spend and review the day and talk about Jesus and review what the, just all kinds of things, pray together, sing songs. And if we don't have that opportunity, it's missed, Right? I, would, I would love to be part of a household, and praise God that I am currently, and I want it to keep going, that the worship hour is happy, that it's joyous, and that's something we want to share. Of all the treasures we can share in our home, wouldn't this be one of them? That they get the privilege of joining us in worship, and we can sing together and pray together and reflect on the goodness and glory of God. I would hate to miss that time. And that's, I think, what the Lord is saying here. It's not like, all right, you have to do it in the morning. Then when you're walking, you've got to do it again. And then, No, it's a privilege. It's a joy. It's a happy time to be able to talk about Jesus and be a Christian home. Cameron, I think I'd be remiss. There may be some here who are not sure. Like, how do you do family worship? What are you even talking about? I, I found this book at the ABC. It's called The, Disciple, the Discipleship Handbook. Did everyone and see it? There you go. <laughs> it's got a chapter in it called The Family Altar, and it just describes the importance of family worship and gives a lot of principles and practical ways to have family worship. Wonderful. Amen. So there's a handy resource available yeah. just for that very thing. What was the name of that book again? Oh, that, <laughs> that would be and, and where is it available? The ABC. Amen. The, uh, the Discipleship, Discipleship Handbook. Handbook. That's right. Transitioning yes. to, <laughs> away from shameless plugs on the Sabbath morning. No, I'm just kidding. What happens Let's go to, it kind of touches on in the next day's lesson, but it's a natural extension of this conversation. We're assuming that every home where a Christian lives is everyone's on the same page, it's happy and ordered, we just want to strive for that high standards, we enjoy our family worship time together, everything is bliss. But are there homes where not everyone is on the same spiritual page, where there is some tension 
over the very thing that should be bringing us joy is actually bringing some frustration. What does the Bible, what Bible counsel do we see here and what principles can we extract for our lives today? I think one of the well, texts we need to go to if you want to... Yeah, I can read go ahead. Uh, from the lesson it talks about Paul's counsel in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And uh, I won't read all of it, but I'll start in verse 12. This is 1 Corinthians 7, 12. But to the rest I, not the Lord, say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise your children would be clean, but now they are holy. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bond in such cases, but God has called us to peace. And I should read the last verse. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, a husband, whether you will save your wife? So you read that scripture? <laughs> yeah. And left it hanging, right? Okay, there. You so have I thought somebody else might comment on it, but I'll try. All right. So it seems like there's, from what I've seen, and this is, I mean, I've pastored here in Michigan a number of churches, and there are some churches where there was a significant number of parents who brought their children to Sabbath school whose spouse never came and we had this um, divided home situation. I would go so far as to say we should be very mindful of how to uh, witness to the spouses of our members who may not be members. We should make that a, an intentional effort. Um, but there's two different things that I have found that they struggle with. On one side, it's how uh, do I win my spouse? So there's the need to be patient, the need to not impose everything that you believe on your spouse. Like on Sabbaths, make your spouse turn off the TV, uh, shut down everything that they normally do, kind of make them keep a pseudo-Sabbath with you. It's not generally very helpful unless they're very amenable, very, you know, agreeable. They might be embittered by that a little bit. Um, it might be better in some cases to spend Sabbath with like-minded believers and give them some free time during those sacred hours. Um, but there's that difficulty of needing to be sure you're patient and, and they're, they're not converted. So they, they're going to, you know, um, not always act on their best behavior, if you will. So it requires extra. You know, if you're a Christian, you should make your home even sweeter. And your spouse should see that in patience and mercy and what have you. So that's one side of it that's difficult for those who are in this situation. The other is avoiding falling into worldliness again. So on the other side, you have the challenge of, you know, it's difficult when you have somebody living in the house and they're watching those things that you are inclined to want to watch. They're wanting you to go on those trips that you used to go on. They're constantly bringing up what you used to be. And it requires sometimes for you to take some stands to, uh, to maybe um, say, I'm not going to go there. I'm, I'm going to spend Sabbath with these friends and not at home. I'm going to make sure that my first duty and responsibility is always to God. So there's a, a difficult balance that no question is very difficult, but the Lord will help uh, us to be able to be kind and merciful, but at the same time principled enough to stand on 
what the Lord has asked us to do. You know, Jim, this situation reminds me of my grandparents. My grandmother was raised in an Adventist home, but then she decided to leave the church, and at that time she met my grandfather, and they got married. Well, after a few years, my grandmother decided to come back into the church and uh, started keeping the Sabbath again, became a vegetarian, and my grandpa looks at her, this isn't what I signed up for. You know, this isn't the person he had married. And yet my grandmother kept praying for him, praying for him, would have family, family worship um, and would invite him. He wouldn't come, but she would still have her own little worship and uh, would pray for him. And this went on actually for decades. And um, she would cook meat for him and uh, be very loving and sweet about it. And one day he just said to her, well, if you're not going to eat it, I'm not going to eat it either. And so that was, that was fine. You know, she hadn't pushed him. And uh, she was a really good cook, by the way. So she fixed him wonderful meals. He loved it. Well, towards, uh, as they got older, my grandfather got cancer. And uh, through the influence, actually, of Pathfinders and the sweet influence of my grandmother, he took Bible studies and was baptized. He lived seven more years after that, and he said those were the best years of his life, those last seven years. Amen. So there's a power in the Christian life as a witness to other people, especially in the home. And obviously that influences on children, but also on people who are not under your direct supervision, right? But your peers, your contemporaries, your spouse, your family members, your brothers, sisters, cousins. There is a power of personal influence that is entrusted to the Christian by God. In fact, if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul, again, one of Paul's interesting ways of writing, he says things that we wouldn't, if someone were to say them in a sermon today, you'd like, well, that was a little bit uh, arrogant of you to say that. But Paul just gets away with it. I don't know how he does it. But for instance, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 1. Jaron, could you read that for us? 1 Corinthians 11, 1. Sure. Imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. You know, I, I, we, we kind of, I've caught myself saying, no, 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 don't, don't look to me as your example. Jesus is your example. Don't, don't look to me. Don't. But Paul had no problem saying, hey, follow me. Imitate me. But he always qualified it, as I imitate Christ. Right, but he understood that Jesus was no longer physically there. He had t- been taken to heaven. He was now in the heavenly realms, you know, not visible any day. And so if you say, hey, follow this invisible Jesus, they're going to say, well, where is he? And he said, well, I tell you what, follow me as I follow him. And he put himself up, and on more than one occasion, right, he would refer to this power of personal influence. Did you have uh, some text on that? Yeah, I was looking at this book, (laughs) Um, (laughs) and there's a section here about the importance of mentoring. Yes. And it is amazing how frequently this is, especially in the New Testament, repeated. You have Jesus who said in John 14, 12, the works that I do, he will do also, the one who believes in him. He says, I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Peter says that elders should be established, but they should not behave as lords over those entrusted to to them, but to be examples to the flock. Mm. And then... uh, Paul, in addition to the text in 1 Corinthians, to the Philippians says, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. Hmm. 
I mean, this is a continual thing where in the New Testament you get the picture that discipleship, you know, when you think about Jesus, what taught the disciples was not just his teachings to the crowd, but that they learned how to pray by watching Jesus pray. They learned how to share with others in a very kind and, and yet firm way when needed by the way Jesus did it. Everything that Jesus did, they learned from. And in the same way, when we are talking about making disciples in the church, we have to model things. That's, that's, unless our words are, have corresponding uh, example, then it loses its power and influence. I would say that, uh, you know, this is a great subject. We, each one of us, myself and each one of you, are an example whether you realize it or not. People will follow you. Yes. So be someone worthy to follow. We always like to say, you know, follow Jesus. And that's, that's fine and dandy, but people will follow us. Yes. Um, I, an example I have, I was studying in a, in a Bible study group about 15 people with new members. And we were discussing a lifestyle issue, what a Christian should or should not do. And one of the new members piped up and said, does Pastor Jaron do that? And that was his answer to the question. Mm. And so I think we, what we are... What was the answer to the question? <laughs> the answer is we did not do that particular thing in that case. Um, but I think we, we have to realize we are teaching others. We are an example, yes. period. So what are we sharing by that example? Mercy. You know, in, that, in our own home, I, 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 we're so running out of time and it's just killing me here, but child guidance page 530. To go back around to the, you know, the original thing we started the entire Sabbath school program with, you know, how you got to just come to Sabbath school and be on time. Listen to this from child guidance page 530. She says, fathers and mothers should make it a rule that their children attend public worship on the Sabbath and should enforce the rule. Wait for it. <laughs> By their own example. She continues saying, by example, as well as precept, we should impress upon them the importance of religious teaching. You know, the book really should be called Parent Guidance. But the reality is each of us, whether it's to our own children or to our own spouses or to our own neighbors or coworkers or friends or family members extended, wherever we are, we are living, breathing witnesses and influence and example of what Christianity is. So the question we leave with you today is, what are they seeing in your home? What do they see in your time management, in the management of your money, the language that you speak, your temperament, your diligence in work, your excellence in school, whatever the capacity is in which God has given you opportunity to encounter other people, are you a reflection of God's glory? Or are you living the Hezekiah life just wanting to show off instead of show forth the glory of God? It is my prayer, and I believe the prayer of all of us here today, that we each individually have that conversion experience where we can literally say to people, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Is that your prayer today? Do you wanna be imitators of Christ so that people can see you as an example? Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for giving us the ultimate example of your love, grace, kindness, justice, and mercy in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Thank you for giving us your word Thank you for giving us the testimony of these apostles, and thank you for giving us the spirit of prophecy to make that direct application today in our lives. But Lord, with all of that theory, we want it to be more than that. We want it to be put into practice in our own homes, in our own lives. So what I would pray today that you would bless each individual here, 
that you would make us the witness that you want us to be as we seek to not show forth, not show off our own abilities, but to show forth the glory of God. For we pray all of this in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.